Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. All right, welcome everybody. My name is David Bruner. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're joining us. This is Long Story Short. I believe this is week 10, and we are looking at um, the comeback, the return of Israel from exile, and some of the events associated with that movement. So I'm going to dive in and explain a little bit more about that in a minute, but before we do that, let's pray. Good and gracious God, our Father in heaven, thank you for these friends and for this time. Thank you for the time that we've been able to set aside uh, in our busy lives to study your word. We pray, Lord God, that it would speak to us with power this evening, um, that we would understand it and take its message to heart and apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, um, let me say a few things. So, um, first of all, congratulations. We're basically done with the Old Testament at this week. I say congratulations because I know that's been a, a challenge for many of us. The Old Testament is less familiar to us than the New Testament. So if you've been struggling or if, if you've been working hard to keep track of all the pieces, take a deep breath. It also means that we're uh, a little more than halfway through this series. So as we enter the New Testament, the New Testament is a numerical minority of the Bible. So you've climbed more than half the mountain already. So I want to say congratulations for that reason. Now, um, earlier today, a very nice person left a a bag full of chocolates on my desk. So I wanted to share these with you. So please feel free to help yourself to one or two at most. Please don't do what my kids would do and eat all of them and not share any with anyone else. But please do help yourself to one or two and pass them around. Um, And I just want to say these are only for my in-person students. You know, if you're listening to this online, I love you so much. I'm glad you enjoy this class. If you come, you too might get some candy. But it's only for the in-person students at this point. Um, I just want to make a shout out to say uh, if if there are lingering questions about the Old Testament that you have, or questions about the Bible in general that haven't been answered for you at this point, feel free to email me or text me, and I'd love to talk with you about those. Um, In the interest of making sure things are clear, I'm going to do what I have uh, called, with more than a touch of chutzpah, a one-minute recap of the Old Testament. Now, Jim, you should feel free to just plug your ears if you want during this one-minute recap. It will be painful to those with more advanced sensibilities but uh, it's my effort to simplify. So oftentimes when we read the Bible, we see the trees and not the forest. So if if I say, you know, how many of you have heard the story about when Elijah hears the still small voice? Raise your hand if you've heard that story at least once in your life, a few of us. How many of you know what book in the Bible it's in, right? So part of what happens is that we, we get these stories, but they're kind of we don't know where to put them in the larger biblical story that unfolds from Genesis to Revelation. So I'm going to do this brief recap of the Old Testament in the hope of setting the stage a little bit for what we'll learn tonight. Okay, let me see if I can do this. I'm actually going to set a timer just for fun, okay? All right, hold on. We're all, okay, hold on, hold on. 59 seconds, okay, are we ready? Go, okay. God calls Abraham and makes a covenant with him and his descendants. That's the book of Genesis. The Hebrews wind up in Egypt and are enslaved. They're eventually liberated by Moses. That's Exodus. God gives Israel the law, a set of expectations for how to live as a distinctive and holy people. That's also the book of Exodus, also Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The Jews wander in the wilderness before entering the promised land. Numbers and Joshua. Israel asks for a king, and God gives them one. Under Saul, David, and Solomon, the kingdom is united. First and second Samuel, first kings. Then the kingdom splits in two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Eventually, both kingdoms are conquered by foreign powers. Israel by Assyria in 722 BC, and Judah by Babylon in 587 BC. Those are the books of first and second kings and first and second chronicles, respectively. Oh, shucks. I'm dead. Okay. 
in, in my penalty time, I will continue to explain the latter part of the Old Testament. Throughout this period, God sends prophets to proclaim his word to the people and their kings and to call them back to the covenant. So we see this in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other prophetic books. When Judah falls, most of its leaders are taken into exile in Babylon. And when Babylon falls in turn to the Persian Empire, the Jews are permitted to return home. So that's where we're at this week. So that was more like a 90-second summary of the Old Testament. It's not bad considering how long it is, the Old Testament, not my summary. So let me specifically connect some links between the book of Jeremiah, which we looked at last week, and the book of Ezra, which we're looking at this week. So last week we looked at the prophets, specifically Jeremiah. As you may recall, Jeremiah preached in the south, in the kingdom of Judah, before Judah fell. So he preached when there was a divided kingdom, there was north, well, there wasn't north anymore, right? He preached in the divided kingdom, the north had been gobbled up, the south was still around. His book concludes with the fall of Jerusalem. So he's pretty much in the period uh, leading up to the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of Judah. Now, when you read the prophets, I want to remind you, all the prophets are at various time periods. It's kind of a loose designation. So they share a common mission, but not um, a common time period. Some of them are in the north, when the northern kingdom still exists. Some of them are in the south. Some of them preach um, after the exile. As we'll see this week, there are numerous prophets who are operating once Israel has returned from exile in Babylon. So just bear that in mind. Okay. You may recall last week I threw out this mnemonic device. Do you all know what a mnemonic device is? Okay, I see several heads nodding. I, had, I was zapped by spell check in an extremely amusing way today when I tried to spell mnemonic. I don't advise doing it without computer assistance because you will fail. Um, but the helpful mnemonic device is ABC, right? So the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon. So Assyria is gobbling up the northern kingdom. Babylon is gobbling up the southern kingdom. And then C stands for Cyrus. So Cyrus is the emperor of Persia. Persia is the empire <laughs> that gobbles up Babylon and liberates the Jews to return from exile. Okay, before we read Ezra, does all of that, does all of that make sense? Is there anything I can make clearer to you? Okay, so basically from last week to this week, we've moved from right before Judah falls to um, the process of Israel's coming back to the land, okay? So what I'm going to do now is let's find Ezra chapter 1, and I'm going to read Ezra 1 and Ezra 3 for us. So um, this will be two whole chapters. It's a little bit of a long reading, but it'll give you a good sense of what Ezra's on about. So give me an amen when you found Ezra in your Bible. I got one lone amen by himself. The rest of us are going to take a little bit longer to find the book of Ezra, which I appreciate. I, I will say this, this part of this class has really brought me up against the limits of my own knowledge of the Bible. So, you know, there's a prophet named Zechariah and there's a prophet named Zephaniah. And from the standpoint of a, an American in 2023, I find that deeply unfair. Uh, and I, I, I wish I could remonstrate with the Lord and say, Lord, for the sake of your flock in North America in 2023, please give these prophets very different names. But he never listens to me. Um, anyway, are we at Ezra 1? Okay. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished... The Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also in a written edict declared. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them. 
are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides freewill offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. The heads of the families of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, got ready to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors aided them with silver vessels, with gold, with goods, with animals, and with valuable gifts, besides all that was freely offered. King Cyrus himself brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. King Cyrus of Persia had them released into the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shesh-Bazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the inventory. Gold basins, 30. Silver basins, 1,000. Knives, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Other silver bowls, 410. Other vessels, 1,000. The total of the gold and silver vessels was 5,400. All these Shesh-Bazar brought up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So now we'll skip to chapter three. When the seventh month came and the Israelites were in the towns, the people gathered together in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josedek, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his kin, set out to build the altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it as prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundation because they were in dread of the neighboring peoples, and they offered burnt offerings upon it to the Lord morning and evening. And they kept the festival of booths as prescribed and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the ordinance as required for each day. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the sacred festivals of the Lord, and the offerings of anyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from King Cyrus of Persia. In the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedach, made a beginning, together with the rest of their people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward, to have the oversight of the work on the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his kin, and Cadmiel and his sons, Binui and Hodavia, along with the sons of Henadad, the Levites, their sons and kin, together took charge of the workers in the house of God. When the, workers, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people, who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. Okay, turn to a neighbor and come up with one comment, one thing that strikes you, and one question. We'll take a few minutes and come back.
All right, let's come back together. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, questions, and comments. Uh, we've got Dawn, our microphone ambassador, so when you raise your hand, uh, she will come over to you and please speak into the microphone so we can make sure that um, our friends on the podcast hear you. I may be jumping the gun a little bit here with what you have planned for the night. I'm not sure, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. When did, quote unquote, the doctrine of outsider exclusion change? Because by the time we got to Jeremiah, he was preaching, well, we, not, we really shouldn't be kicking the aliens out. Um, you should be accepting them. I remember specifically talking a little mm -hmm. bit about that. But, you know, we go back, you know, a thousand, roughly a thousand years before when, before, and we were talking about harem, and no, no outside sure. influence whatsoever. Keep everybody out. Nothing, nothing yeah. should influence this. Um, but then I know it as context to this, we're going to talk, you, you may talk about how, like, they were going to annul marriages and things like that. Or like they forcefully annulled marriages with anybody even minorly associated with outsiders after they after their return to Jerusalem, mm -hmm. which I remember re reading. They specifically said God did not tell them to do this. So when did do you have any inf uh, idea about when God's decision to not have exclusion yeah. changed? Yeah. So I think it's a it's tricky. First of all, that's a great question, Matt. Um, so I I think it's. It's tricky because there are different, um, the Old Testament doesn't speak with one voice about this. So, you know, there, there's definitely, um, I think there are definitely strands of the Old Testament, parts of the Old Testament where it's very much the Hebrews against other nations. And those are particularly sort of in the, the I don't know, the first half of the Old Testament, right? So particularly around Joshua or other places where it's, you know, a very contentious relationship. Um, and often what the story scripture tells there is about God being with the Hebrews and they defeat the other people. But there's also this other storyline in the Old Testament that's all about God using Israel to bless the whole world. And that's there from the very beginning, because it's there in Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham and says, I will, I will bless you and you will be a blessing, and through you the whole world will be blessed. And, and the way I would put it as a Christian is that I think this is a, um, an unresolved tension in the Old Testament. And I think if you took a look, for instance, at contemporary Judaism, you would see various strands of the issue there playing out as well. There are different points of view on exactly that question. I think Christianity represents one way of resolving that issue, right? Where, you know, Jesus, we're going to talk more about this today, but you know, Jesus and Paul both essentially say, okay, Gentiles can be included in the community of God's covenant people, and they can do so without being circumcised and without obeying the ritual law. And, and then things kind of go off in that direction. Um, so on one level, right, I want to say is, you know, the, the way that changes is it really happens in Jesus, it happens with the Christian movement that there's this radical inclusion of everybody. I also have to say, I think it's there in the Bible from the very beginning, even though it might not always be the loudest note that we're hearing. So, great question, Matt. Thank you. What else can we talk about? A question came to mind mm. when we were reading uh, Ezra 1 and 3. And that was, and I was thinking back to, to last week and how we ended last week. And my question was, how did we get here? Yeah. And the reason I asked that is because in our readings for this week, there was a lot of good information about how we got there. Yeah. And we're not really talking about that tonight, but maybe just briefly, we could uh, go through some of the things that happened. For example, Daniel in the court of the king and, and, and all that, that uh, kind of led us to the, to the point where 
where Cyrus was, was allowing this to happen or actually supporting what was happening. Sure. I mean, so yeah, I mean, there are books like, there are some books in the Bible that depict uh, life during the exile. So Daniel's one, and I think Esther is another. Is there anything in particular you're thinking of from what we read this week? Well, yeah, there was, uh, you know, the, the transformation of the, uh, the kings uh, that mm. Daniel were, were serving, because there was a transformation that took place sure. in order for this to happen and be supported. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I need to think about that a little bit, Randy. I mean, um, so those books kind of, uh, to a certain extent, they're off on their own. They're doing their own thing. Um, let's come back to that some other time, if we may, when I've had a little more time to think about it. Good question. Okay, here comes some trouble. <laughs> Please. Why do we have to read the translation? Why don't we all read Hebrew? <laughs> Why don't we all read Hebrew? Yeah. The Old Testament is a literature of a very different culture. Indeed it is. I mean, you, you, have, you have good guys who have slaves. I mean, you, you have to just appreciate the culture that these books come in. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these books that seem strange to us make more sense when they're viewed in the culture 3,000 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're going to have struggles. This is, this is a different literature from a different time. And we can, we can seek the timeless truth in it, but it, it's still wrapped up in a language and culture that's very, very different than ours. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the... So, you know, the the taking of Jerusalem is 587, right? So the events we're, the events that this is depicting are about 2,500 years old. So think about how different Western culture was 100 years ago, and then multiply that by 25 and put it on the other side of the world. So, you know, for all that, yes, it's, I, I believe it's definitely God's word to us and we can profit from studying it. But yeah, it, it's worth taking the time to put it into context and to understand a little bit more of what was going on. Job and Ecclesiastes are going to argue with Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. They're two very different points of view. Mm -hmm. And you, you just got to accept the time they came from and what their arguments are. Right. So one way I think of it, so... What Jim just said is Job and Ecclesiastes are going to argue with Deuteronomy, right? So sometimes in the Old Testament, when you, and in the New Testament as well, like you'll find places where the scripture seems to be in opposition with itself. Uh, this is no surprise to us, right? So the Old Testament, tell, we're familiar with this along the lines of a contrast between Old Testament and New Testament. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the Old Testament. New Testament is love your enemies you know, pray for, pray for those who hurt you, right? It's also the case that sometimes we'll find those tensions or, or even disagreements within the lines of the Old Testament itself, right? So Job is having, Job is a lot of things. Job is sort of an argument with other parts of the Old Testament. Um, so, and, you know, we see this, for instance, where um, within the Old Testament, it, you see it in the Ezra-Nehemiah story where Ezra wants a bunch of, a bunch of the Hebrews have been living in the land. They've been living in Israel, Palestine, and they've married pagan wives. And he comes back and he says, oh, this is terrible. You know, you're not supposed to do this, which may be true according to the tenets of the law. I don't know. But then he says, well, you have to divorce them and you have to abandon them. And that's, that's the way to do it, right? That's a very drastic um, unpalatable solution to say the least. Well, one of the other prophets that's around during this time criticizes what Ezra is doing and says, no, that's, that's not how it's supposed to be. God doesn't like divorce. Don't do that. 
If you think you're pleasing God by divorcing your pagan spouse, that's not good. So part of what we're working on by studying the Bible as a whole, it is more complicated than we often think, right? It's not always as simple as the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. We're trying to hear the, the, the chorus that the Bible is, right? A chorus with different parts, and there are tensions and resolutions and harmonies. And if you can hear the whole thing, it's much more beautiful and richer than it would otherwise be. But it starts by recognizing the complexity that not everybody is seeing the same part. Lori and I were talking about some of the people when the foundation was built weeping and some being yeah. joyful. And they gave a reference to older people weeping and we were thinking that could be missing the first mm -hmm. temple and again mourning the fact it was burnt down mm -hmm. or could it be fear that this one was going to be hmm. destroyed because there were still enemies of the Jews mm -hmm. in the area, but trying to understand where that might have come from. Sure. It, it's a very powerful moment. Um, I mean, so I have, the moment that comes to mind for me is when my daughter Eleanor was born, my first child, and it was one of those moments where she was born and I was laughing and I was crying and I was so happy and I was so moved and I was a mess and I didn't, you know, there were a lot of feelings going on in that moment. So part of what's happening here is simply that the, the creators of Ezra understand human psychology enough to depict a moment like this. Um, and that's part of it. It's the psychological complexity of it. And part of it is also exactly what you and Lori were getting at, that for those who had experienced the first temple, there were a lot of emotions, right? Of this is, this is how it used to be. Is it gonna be just as good as it was? Will this temple too be destroyed? Are we in danger? A lot of, we can assume a lot of those feelings are under the surface for those observers. Um, let, in fact, that's a perfect transition to the next thing I want to say. So thank you for that. Um, let me make some observations about this passage. Um, so in uh, Ezra 3, one of the things we see is that the construction of the second temple is portrayed in ways that mirror the construction of the first temple. So I think part of what you're seeing here is a portrayal in which these people are doing every, everything they can to do it exactly the way they did it the first time. So, and you can, you can see here on the screen behind me, right? So they, um, they pay silver to the builders just as David does in 1 Chronicles 22. So there's a similar means of payment they bring in craftsmen from the neighboring nations of Tyre and Sidon, which has um, a background in 2 Chronicles 2. So if you, look at, if you look at the portrait in 1st, 2nd Chronicles, that's where you'll notice these things. The Levites wear vestments, just like in 2 Chronicles 5, once Solomon dedicates the temple. They play musical instruments symbols and trumpets. By the way, if we ever do a capital campaign here and we ever dedicate a sanctuary, I really want you to encourage me to have symbols and trumpets present when we have the dedication. I think that would be awesome. Um, and they, um, they praise the Lord. So when it says, praise the Lord, his steadfast love endures forever, that's Psalm 136, which is a very beautiful uh, very beautiful psalm in praise of God's steadfast love. It's also the, the song that they sing or recite in 2 Chronicles 5 when they dedicate the temple. So what you're seeing here is that the Hebrews are very self-consciously doing a callback to exactly how things worked before. They're, you know, they, they don't just wander back from Babylon and say, right, should we, should we create the foundation for the temple? Yeah, sure, okay, now we've done it. 
They're aware of the power of the moment and they want to intentionally make that connection to what's already happened, to the first temple. Second, the narrator shows us how the construction of the second temple mirrors the first, but the result is a disappointing anticlimax. And again, this is one of the places where looking back at the chronicler's account of the dedication of the temple is quite instructive. So what happens in Second Chronicles is the presence of the Lord descends on the temple. So if you remember way back in Exodus, when the Hebrews are escaping from Israel, the presence of God travels with them. And how does the book of Exodus symbolize the presence of God? Does anyone remember? Sure, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. I, the thing I'm thinking of is the, the pillar of fire and the, the cloud. So um, that's what's represented here, right? So when they dedicate the temple, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So there's this palpable, physical, visible um, way in which God shows up and takes up residence in the temple. So remember, when you're talking about the first temple or the second temple, the very literal seriousness with which the Jews thought of God dwelling in the temple. That was where, that was where God lived. That was God's mailing address, was the temple. And so that's what happens when they create the first, uh, the first temple. So what happens when they dedicate the second temple? Nothing, exactly. Nothing, nothing like that. So no such event occurs in Ezra 3. The, the Jewish reader, the one acquainted with the history of Israel, who's read Chronicles or First and Second Kings, you would expect there to be this moment where the, the, the cloud descends and God's presence fills the temple and it doesn't happen. And it's, it's one of those things that is quite striking um, when you know what to look for. So that's why we describe this scene as anticlimactic. You expect something big to happen, but it doesn't. So you expect there to be, you know, how many of you have seen uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? When the, the big guy with the big sword steps up into Indiana Jones and he waves the sword around and he's getting ready for a big fight. And what does Indiana Jones do, right? He pulls out his pistol and guns him down and there's no hand-to-hand -hand battle at all. It's a, it is a comedic anticlimax, right? And of course, anticlimax is often quite funny because you expect drama and then what you get is something you know, silly and small. So that's a comedic example of anticlimax. The other example I thought of, and I don't know why I thought of this, but it was in my head very strongly this afternoon, was Al Capone's vault. Do any of you remember Al Capone's vault? I, the, the Wikipedia article on the treasures of Al Capone's vault was very interesting because it said this essentially was the beginning of contemporary semi-journalism because it essentially was the, the first time someone said, well, there might be something here. I don't know. <laughs> Let's see together if there's something here. And at the end of 120 minutes, we'll tell you whether or not this is real, which alas is all too influential in our society. Uh, um, but yeah, Geraldo Rivera had this big primetime special where he said, I'm going to uncover what's in Al Capone's vault. What was in Al Capone's vault? Nothing. And so that he famously, you know, famously said, well, it looks like we struck out. And uh, that was a moment of anticlimax, right? It was billed as this very big big discovery, oh, what's going to be in there, millions of dollars or bathtub gin or something? No, it was nothing, right? So you have to think of something similar happening to the Hebrews in this moment. That's the point of these silly examples. It's a way of talking about anticlimax. So the, you know, the dog that doesn't bark is very important in this passage. The thing that doesn't happen is very important here. Um, 
And this might help explain the mixed feelings of the Israelites. So this is exactly the passage that Lori and Diane were talking about a moment ago. Right? All the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the, Lord, of the house of the Lord was laid. But the priests and the Levites, the old people who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice. So I, I don't think there's just one explanation to why it's happening. I think um, the Bible is sophisticated for there to be a lot of different things going on here. But I definitely think one thing that's going on is that sense of disappointment or a sense of we've you know we were up here and now we're back in, and then uh, Babylon came and knocked us down and now we're uh, you know we're up here we we've laid the foundation for this temple but it's so small and it's so tiny and insignificant compared to what we had I suspect there's some of that at play here um that, that powerful sense of anticlimax might explain some of the mixed emotions here. Okay. There is some additional scriptural evidence to support this. So stick your finger in your Bible at Ezra 3 and turn with me to Haggai 2. Now, if you need a moment to find the book of Haggai, I do not stand in judgment of you is the third to last book of the Old Testament. Yeah, that's right. It's right after Zephaniah, but let's not start talking about the Z prophets or we'll, we'll really get confused. Uh, Haggai chapter two. All right, give me an amen when you got it. All right, looks like most of us got it. Okay, so uh, here's what Haggai two says. Uh, in the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jeho Jehozadak, the high priest. We're familiar with them. They're characters in the book of Ezra we just read about. And say, Who is left among you that saw this house, the temple, in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing. Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua. Take courage, all you people of the land. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Um, so you see here a very frank acknowledgement, at least in Haggai, that the temple um, under Ezra and Zerubbabel was not the way it was before. And Haggai's message is, hey, don't be discouraged. Stick with it. It will grow and get better. But that, that may explain um, some of the emotions we see in Ezra 3 as well. Interestingly, as Becca reminded us this past weekend, there are similar anticlimactic moments in Ezra's ministry, in the book of Ezra, and in Nehemiah's ministry as well. So this is a recurring motif throughout these two books. Questions or comments about this? Well, I'm 88 years old, so I'm one of the oldest here, which would mean probably a good old age, except if you're Abraham at 100, <laughs> which would mean that I'd be 18 years old yeah. when all of this happened if I stayed for the next 70 years. So we're relying on teenagers to remember what was, yeah. which is kind of interesting to me because the teenagers I know don't, <laughs> don't observe very well. Hmm. Anyway, just a thought that came to my mind. Yeah. I'm still in high school. <laughs> Thank just you. Just a, uh, a quick thought on, well, when Moses goes up Mount Sinai, he goes up to the cloud, mm -hmm. and he comes down with the Ten Commandments, and they're put in the Ark of the Covenant, which is put in the sanctuary. And as I recall it, the cloud descends into the sanctuary. The... It's been 70 years since I've done any serious Old Testament work, but my recollection is that the dimensions of the tabernacle are exactly the same as the dimensions of the Holy of Holies. Hmm. And when the temple was built, the Ark of the Covenant is put into the Holy of Holies, 
as it was in the, in, in the Holy of Holies is a permanent tabernacle. And again, the cloud enters. The cloud doesn't come this time. Mm -hmm. you know, it's come all those other times, but not this time. So yeah, there, there would be disappointment. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. But what if the cloud never left? Say more about that. Well, maybe there was no need for the big fanfare because God's presence was still in that spot. So why do they have? Why does it have to? I don't know. Just something yeah. that popped into my head. Yeah. So part of the assumption of the Jews was that. Um, God's dwelling, God's dwelling place in the temple had been compromised by their sin and that the destruction of the temple was of a piece, you know, was a response to their sin and that God kind of, God's departure from the temple was what allowed it to be destroyed. So like if you look at the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel we didn't read him and his book is really crazy um, in a wonderful way, but a little crazy. If you read it, he actually has a vision of the divine glory pulling up stakes and leaving the temple. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think ancient Israel's view was very much that, to, to say that God had been there all along, I think is, um, for them, wouldn't do justice to what they'd experienced. Okay, let me offer some more thoughts. So I'm guessing that for most of you, this is like a first pass through this material. Am I correct? Yes, as, as basically for me. Um, so let me share some further takeaways. Okay. Um, first thing is, God is faithful. So this is an easy thing to overlook because there's so much happening. There's so much action in this story. Takeaway is this. Israel does go into exile in Babylon. So what Jeremiah prophesies is correct. There's a divine judgment of the sin of his people and the temple's destroyed, they go into exile. So that's true. The flip side of that is that God remains quite faithful to his people and they, um, they survive the exile, which is something rather astounding. Um, there are plenty of people groups in the history of the world who get conquered or dragged off into exile who frankly simply disappear from the record of history. Israel does not. And then after 70 years, they are sent home. And even in Jeremiah, if you look at Jeremiah 25 or Jeremiah 30, he's talking about you're going to go into exile, so get yourself ready. And then after a time, you will come home. So God never says, hey, you know, you're going to go into exile and then you're really going to be in trouble and I don't care about you at all. <laughs> and I will wash my hands of you, you stupid idiots, um, which he probably wanted to say it at some point or another, right? God sticks with Israel. And so there is this very powerful moment of the, you know, return from exile of the continued survival of God's people. And, and I think that's important not to overlook. God is faithful. God is faithful in unexpected ways. God is faithful in unexpected ways. So one of the things you see, and this is in, in chapter one, when Israel returns from exile, it is due to the actions of the pagan emperor Cyrus. So Assyria, Babylon, Cyrus. So Cyrus is a, is a very important minor character in the Bible. He's mentioned like 20-some times. He comes up in, in Daniel and Chronicles at, here in Ezra. And um, part of what's, this goes back to um, Matt's question earlier about the idea of exclusion versus inclusion. So what you see in Ezra and Nehemiah is that God uses Cyrus for his purposes. So Cyrus has his own reasons for setting the Hebrews free. He has his own political reasons. So basically Cyrus is invested in 
pretending to be a nice guy <laughs> and giving the groups that he's conquered, that he's in charge of, as high a degree of autonomy as possible. So he likes the idea of basically saying, all right, you Hebrews, go back to your homeland. That's fine. Go, you know, go, yes, please rebuild your temple. That's fine. As long as you pay me my tax every year, and if we have a problem, you are cooperative with me, you can totally do that, right? So Cyrus has his own reasons for doing that, that help Cyrus. But from the perspective of Israel, Israel is saying, well, he thinks that's why he's doing it. We know <laughs> that God is using him to fulfill his purposes for us. So God is using Cyrus as a means, as a tool to achieve his purpose. And so part of what you see is this surprising, unexpected way that God remains faithful. So in the book of Isaiah, you get this famous slash infamous passage where uh, Deutero Isaiah calls, the book of Isaiah calls Cyrus Yahweh's anointed. And he's the only non-Jew in the Old Testament who is addressed by that title. Usually that's a king of Israel or a prophet or somebody like that. But here's the book of Isaiah going way out on a limb to say, no, 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 no. Like he's God's anointed. God has chosen him and is using him for a special purpose in his economy of salvation. So part of what you're starting to see here in, um, in the exile and in the return is a widening of the spiritual horizon for Israel. An increasingly clear and assertive sense that God is involved with the whole world. Um, God is not simply a private God just for one people group, just for the Jews or just for Israel. That God is at work in all the world, and God is interested in working redemptively in all the world. So this idea of God using surprising means or unexpected ways to remain faithful is related to what Matt was talking about, right? So in, in the exile and the return, you see God, um, there's an increasing awareness of the ways God is at work outside of Israel, and that God is at work um, to providentially direct the course of world history. So it's, um, that is kind of laying the groundwork in some ways for that idea of inclusion that we talked about uh, a few minutes ago with Matt. Are you with me on that point? Did that make any sense? Yeah, this goes back to what I, I asked earlier. Okay. And that was uh, related to the, the transformation of Cyrus specifically. Sure. And, you know, not only did, did Cyrus provide the opportunity for the return from exile, mm -hmm. he was, at least in some of the readings that, that we read um, in this chapter, he was almost converted mm. from, um, from the... Uh, the, sure. pagan, the paganism, the pagan, yeah. Uh, uh, worship of, of idols and, and golden calves and, or golden whatever they were, to, uh, to actually instructing his people yeah. that they needed to honor God, hmm. the God of Israel. Sure. So it was almost like a, a, a conversion took place. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you, Randy. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions about that stuff I laid down about God being faithful in unexpected ways? Okay, let me go on to my third takeaway. Um, and this is probably the most complicated one, so I'll take a little bit, <laughs> as if the other ones weren't complicated enough. Um, I'll take a little more time to do this. Israel's unfulfilled hopes were intended to point it toward the Messiah. So it's a, at this point in Israel's story, kind of the, the story we're in is kind of the denouement of the Old Testament, the conclusion of the Old Testament. 
So the Old Testament, you know, for Christians basically ends with the return from exile and the kind of stories you find in Ezra and Nehemiah. So it ends with these anticlimactic stories. So despite high hopes, the temple remains rather small and insignificant compared to the temple of old. Despite high hopes, Torah observance remains very spotty and lukewarm among the people. So there's this vision, right, that we're going to go back to Israel and we're going to rebuild the temple and it's going to be bigger than before and God's going to dwell in it. And we've seen how that's challenged in the book of Ezra, right? The, the temple is, is very small. They just rebuild a tiny portion of it and God doesn't come and dwell in it the way he did before. Similarly, there's all this pagan intermarriage that's problematic. And then there's a recommended solution that seems equally problematic and draconian. And then at the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes along and tries to shake things up and get people moving in the right, right way. And he, he makes a bunch of reforms and says, all right, people, you have to do this and do this and do this. And everybody says, yes, sir, we got it, Nehemiah, way to go. And then he leaves for a second and he comes back later and they're, are they doing it? No, not at all. And so the end of the book is, is Nehemiah's frustration that he can't get through to them and make them behave the way he wants them to behave. Similarly, many of the prophets, both before and after the exile, hoped for a day when pagan nations would come to Jerusalem to worship the true God and peace would reign everywhere. So, very interesting. You start to see in this time these, these visions of A, um, pagan nations coming to Jerusalem to worship God and peace everywhere. And these are kind of mixed in with commentary on the present. Um, so stick a finger in your Bible if you want and turn with me to Isaiah 11. This is a well-known messianic vision. I'm just going to start reading it. You look for Isaiah 11, okay? A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. How many of you have heard this before? When do we hear this in church? Christmas, right? So we're Christians. We interpret this passage as about Jesus, but it's, it's more than that. So let's, let's keep reading. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Underline that part. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. And then look at verses six through nine. This is, this is awesome. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp and the wean's child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. First of all, the book of Isaiah is awesome. Second of all, so usually on Christmas, we stop reading, you know, at verse like two or three or maybe four at most. Verses six through nine are this kind of prophetic vision that I'm talking about, right? So it's a vision of peace. Um, and you can tell it's a vision of supernatural peace, of transcendent peace, because it's describing things that are impossible in the world we currently live in. 
So the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the lion, the fatling together. You know, farmers are not going to embrace this vision of agricultural life anytime soon. But that's okay, because what Isaiah is talking about is something, a fundamental change to what everyday life looks like. So this is a, this is a vision he's having, and it's tied to the coming of this person that has the spirit of the Lord on him, but it's also related to, to peace and to, to mutual concord, okay? So let's look at one more passage. Let's look at Micah 4, 1 through 4. And let me see if I can find Micah without looking it up. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Aha, I found it. Did any of you beat me? Yes, I'm the best at finding Old Testament prophets. All right, give me an amen when you found Micah 4. Okay, several of us found it. Okay, so we're just going to read verses 1 through 4. This will also be familiar to you from Advent. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So whenever you see Lord's house, that means the the temple. So they're talking about Jerusalem here. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. Peoples shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." So this is another example of a prophetic vision that's looking for a time when, first, when pagan nations will come to Jerusalem to worship God, right? So you see that in, you know, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. So Micah is saying the pagans are going to say, hey, let's go to Jerusalem and worship God and be instructed by them. They, they know what's up. And it's not an accident at all that in verse 3, you get this famous phrase about beating swords into plowshares. So it's a vision of ultimate and final peace. Now, okay, so what do we got? We got unfulfilled expectations about the temple. We got unfulfilled expectations about a holy people. And we have these seemingly unfulfilled expectations about a day when pagan nations are going to be converted and begin worshiping the God of Israel and a day when there will be peace. So we got a lot of unfulfilled expectations and no place to put them. And if you were a Jew, this posed something of a problem. You could say, well, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and... uh, you know, Zephaniah and Zechariah, they all got it wrong. (laughs) Or you could say, well, our God has simply turned his back on us, but neither of those options were palatable or workable from within a Jewish point of view. So this is where the idea of a Messiah, in the sense that we Christians understand it, starts to come from. So these hopes, along with ones about the restoration of the temple, are dashed by history, and eventually Israel begins to hope for their fulfillment in a different way. They begin to hope for a new king in David's line who will radically transform the world, convert pagans to worship of Yahweh, and usher in universal peace. And you can call these messianic hopes or messianic expectations. So, By the time we get to Jesus, these messianic expectations are ripe for, are are ripe. They're in the air. They're everywhere. And 
the question that everybody asks Jesus is, they don't ask, is there a Messiah? What they say is, show us that you're the Messiah, right? Perform a miracle or kick out the Romans or do this other thing. So Jesus is coming into this world that was filled with these messianic expectations. And it all starts in this post-exilic period where there are a ton of big hopes for radical transformation that go unmet. So, what seems like a disappointing and rather bizarre anticlimax, from a Christian point of view, is simply God taking us by the hand and saying, wait, 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 I've got something better for you over here. So I think, there's, I think there's a lesson for us there too, that often when we're disappointed in life, um, we, need to, we need to temper that feeling of disappointment with a, with a reminder that God may have something better for us in store down the road, or that God's story is not yet complete in our lives, or that something may happen long after we're gone that redeems or changes our life experience in some way we can't yet imagine. Um, Israel's unfulfilled hopes begin to point it toward the Messiah. That's the third point I wanted to make. There was a lot of content in that last point I just made, so I want to ask if there are any other questions or comments about um, that last one or any of the other takeaways. I think I can understand how you can look at that and say it all points to the, to the Messiah, and that's what they kind of pin their hopes on. Yep. But how did they think he was going to be a, a king of this world. Sure. Because it doesn't say that anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think it has to do with his... Um, so there's another strand of this that I didn't get into, which is the covenant made with David. So um, when we, if you go back to the lesson on the kings, right, one of the things that's so striking about that is that God makes this unconditional covenant with David. It says, a son of your, of your line will always be on the throne. I thought he said that a son of your line will rule forever, which is Jesus will rule forever. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, that's... So from the... I certainly agree with you. From the Jewish point of view, right, the, what they're expecting is a human king of some relation to David to restore the kingdom. And I think that is a, I, I disagree with that assumption on the basis of how things worked out with Jesus, but I think it is a reasonable assumption to make within the context of ancient Judaism. Um, because, yeah, the, the restoration of, of Jerusalem and um, the monarchy and the temple were such integral parts of their point of view that it was very natural to approach it in terms of a worldly king. Yeah. Of course, now we don't have a temple, and I don't think we have the Ark of the Covenant either. No, unless it's in that big museum in Washington, D.C. at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? This stuff about the messianic expectations is also really important for Jesus' preaching. So, um, in Luke chapter 4, when Luke records Jesus' first sermon, he preaches right out of the book of Isaiah. And he says, uh, the Spirit of God is upon me because he has anointed me, what? To preach good news to the poor, the recovery of sight to the blind, deliverance of the captives. And it's, it is... Um, it's a very messianic text that Jesus chooses to preach on. And in other words, Jesus is um, doing the sort of stuff that they would have expected um, in, in, uh, when the Messiah came, right? So he's um, freeing, freeing the poor, he's uh, healing the blind, and he, his ministry includes the Gentiles in a very dramatic way. 
And so that's another thing that he's doing is convert, you know, converting pagans and, and ushering in peace. So when you read about the ministry of Jesus, try and keep this, these ideas in the back of your mind as well and see if they don't um, provide a little bit of support for thinking of it. Um, last call for questions. All right. Thank you so much for being here. I will see you next week when we will look at the New Testament. Take some chocolate with you. God bless you. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks to our technical assistant, Matthew Sunblade. To find out more about our mission and ministry, visit our website, knoxpres.org. You can join us for Sunday worship in person or online as well. Thanks, and see you next week.